Good afternoon. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and open them to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read this morning our text from the end of this chapter, Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21 will be our passage today. It's also printed in the bulletin for you. But if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it so we can see God's word in its original context. As you're finding the passage, I'd like to say something to the children that are here So children, if I could have your attention for a moment this morning, I want to begin by telling you a story. And this is a true story that I'm going to tell you. It's about a young man named William. William grew up in Germany, and when he was a boy, he loved music. He loved playing music, he loved learning about music, studying music, all things music, especially military music the army bands and the processions that they would play. He loved music. And so when William got a little bit older, he enlisted in the military. And he signed up, and he was part of the military band. Now, before long, his country went to war. And William was uh, deployed, and he had to go and to fight as part of his duties, as well as playing in the military band. But William was very afraid of fighting in war. He was very afraid of that. And at one point... The fighting got particularly intense, and he was so afraid that he ran away from his battalion. Now, if you're in the military, and you're a soldier, running away from your battalion in the middle of a war is about the worst possible thing that you can do. But he was so afraid, he ran away. Now, in the military, in those days, if you ran away from your battalion and you got caught, the penalty was death. And so he was more afraid in running away. And he ran far away, and he went to a different country. He went to England. And when he got to England, nobody knew him. Nobody knew his past. Nobody knew what he had done. And so he could settle down, and he could make a new life for himself because no one knew of his criminal past. He made a new life, and he could pursue his music and his learning and studying music and performing music. And he also got into science. He studied lots of science, and he became quite a well-known scientist. In fact, and this is a true story, this is the William who discovered Uranus, the planet and the moons that circle uh, Saturn, rather. He became quite famous for both music and science uh, until one day, somebody else from his past moved to England. Somebody who knew him, somebody who knew what he had done in deserting his troop in the military. And this person who moved there, his name was George. Actually, his name was King George. He was the king of England, and he knew all about William's past. And one day he summoned William to come before his royal court. William, of course, was was quite afraid. He had to go face the king in his royal court, and, and he knew what was going to happen because he knew King George knew his history. He knew what he had done. And so he went with much fear and much trembling, and he went before the court. Well, when he got there, uh, he had to sit in a waiting room. You don't just walk in and see a king. There was a waiting room, and he had to take a seat, and he had to wait his turn. And he was waiting for quite a while, and you can just imagine waiting there, knowing what's about to happen. And after a while, one of the king's servants came out to him, and he handed him a letter from the king. He said, this is from King George, you need to read this. So with trembling hands, he opened the letter from the king, expecting the worst. As he read the letter, the letter said that I, King George, this is what it said, I, King George, pardon you for your offenses against our native land. The king was forgiving him for what he had done. He had called them there not to condemn him and not to punish him or put him to death for his offenses. He came to 
forgive him and to pardon him. Moreover, he went one step further. He said, not only do I forgive your offenses against our native land, also he was going to bestow on him great honors. He made him a knight. He knighted him so that he became Sir William Tertial. He, he forgave his offenses, and not only did he bring him back to sort of a normal, neutral state, he gave him great honors on William. And I want to tell you, how, how do you think William felt that day when he read that letter? Relief, yes. How do you think he felt about the king? I imagine he was quite fond of King George at that point. I imagine he loved him very much. Now, I tell you this story to tell you that all of us are like William. All of us are in this position. All of us, in our past, we might have not have deserted our military troop. But we've all done things. We've all disobeyed in some ways. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That we deserve death as the penalty for all of our sins, whether it's desertion or something else. But we also need to know that when we read the Bible, particularly the book of Galatians, Galatians is the, as though our king, the Lord Jesus, has handed this letter to one of his servants, and his servant comes and gives it to us and says, here, read this. And we can read now in the Bible, and we can read in Galatians, that we are pardoned. We're going to read today with the scripture that says, uh, we also have believed in Christ Jesus and are justified by faith in Christ. That means we're forgiven for our sins. That means that, that our king, Jesus, no longer holds against us those things that we have done. We're pardoned. We're justified. But moreover, Galatians goes one step further than that. It doesn't just tell us that the Lord has forgiven our sins. It tells us he's bestowing great honor on us. We read also in verse 20, he says, it's Christ now who lives in us. Not only has he forgiven our sin, but he gives us Christ and says, Christ now lives in you. That this honor is yours. He doesn't just return us to sort of a normal, neutral, okay state, but he gives great honor to us, saying that Christ now lives in us. This is the good news for us. Now, how does this make us feel about our king, about our Lord Jesus, who, who knew all that we had done, who knew all of the offenses and the sins and the disobediences we had committed? and yet is willing to not only forgive freely, but to bestow great honor, great joy, great worth on us. It should make us first love our king who does this for us. And, and secondly, what we do is we go back to this letter. I imagine William treasured that letter. I imagine he kept that letter from King George and read it regularly. And so do we. We keep the letter from Jesus given to us in the Bible, and we read it regularly. We go back to it over and over and over again, and we treasure what Christ says to us in the Bible because we find here that he pardons us. Just like my own little boy has favorite books that he goes back to over and over, and every night it's the same book. Read this one, read this one, the same thing. So it should be with the scriptures. When we find news like this, it draws our hearts to want to read over and over and over again what Christ has done for us. We are Sir William, and we are pardoned by our King. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, you are our God, you are our Savior, you are our Lord. And Father, we thank you this morning for the message that you have given to us, the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we are not uh, punished for our disobedience, but because we believe in Jesus Christ, we are pardoned. We are granted forgiveness, and even more, we are granted Christ to live in us. Father, we pray that we will love you even more today for having been reminded of this good news, that we will treasure your word to us even more. 
that we will treasure it as a pearl of great price given to us, a treasure that is very valuable. Father, we ask that you will do this, that you will draw us closer, that you will uh, give us the joy of our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read for us Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. 15 through 21. And it's our custom here, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word this morning? Galatians 2, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. You may be seated. The topic today is the grace of God in Christ, shown to us in the gospel. The grace of God in the gospel given to us that is explained by Paul in these verses. And I have three goals for you in this sermon. Three goals. This is what I pray as I've been preparing this message and planning it out. What I will say, I have three goals for some of you. My goal is that you will learn the gospel and that you will grow in your understanding of the gospel. Maybe some of you just don't, don't know it well. You're not familiar with the, the basic outline or the logic of the gospel or the facts of the gospel. And so for some of you, my prayer is that you will know it and understand it better than you have before. For others of you, my goal is that you will grow in your passion for the gospel. Some of you know it, you understand it, you know the, the facts and you know the logic of the gospel, uh, but you need to treasure it more deeply. It's the pearl of great price which is greater than any wealth or position or experience that this world could ever have. We need to love it more than we have before. For others of you, my goal is that you will grow in your zeal for the spread of the gospel. Perhaps you feel that you're already quite familiar. You know the facts and the reality of the gospel as it's given to us in the scriptures. And perhaps you even feel that, that you treasure it, that you love it, that this is your life. And my goal for you now is that you will grow in your zeal for the spread of the gospel that you will begin to feel unbelievers' need of the gospel more deeply, and that you will develop a vision for the spread of the gospel and for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, both here in Los Angeles and around the world. That God will give you eyes in your heart that see a much greater reality, not simply the individual effects of the gospel, but also the need that our world has to hear this good news. That we will develop passion for the spread of the gospel. All three of these things, no matter where you are, all three of these things are noble goals. And I pray that we'll grow in one, two, or all three of these today. And that the word of God, as it's read and preached to us today, will truly pierce our hearts. That it will lead us to Christ. 
that will grow in our love for him and our desire for Christ. Those are my goals for the sermon today, and, and we have two points today. I want to see through this passage, first, in the first two verses, how the gospel frees you, and then secondly, how the gospel changes you. Two things that the gospel does for us. First, it frees us. Second, it changes us. And so first, how the gospel frees you. This passage that we're looking at today, verses 15 through 21, this is the key passage in the entire book of Galatians. I might have said that before, because every week as I study the text, I just get more and more excited about the particular text for the week, and it works its way into my heart, and I love it more. But, but this truly is the high point of the book of Galatians. If we were to give an outline of the entire book and see the argument that Paul makes, this is the climax of it. Everything he's said so far in the first two chapters has been building up to this point. He's been establishing his authority as an apostle. He's been setting the context of this argument with the apostle Peter, not an argument, but a confrontation that he has. He's been setting the stakes for us, saying that there is only one gospel, there is no other. And so everything he's said so far has been building up to this point where he can make this statement. Everything that we're going to read in chapters 3 through 6 now is, is explaining this, defending what he has said This is where he makes his statement, and then he defends and explains all the ramifications of what he says. So these verses here, verses 15 through 21, are the highlight of the book of Galatians. And we need to make two observations about it as we begin. First of all, what he says here is essentially an explanation of the gospel that he is making for Christians. It's an explanation of the gospel. He's explaining the very basic truths that Christ has died for us, We are justified before God by faith, not by works of the law. In a sense, this is Gospel 101. This is the very basic heart of the Gospel. And yet, remember, he's writing this to churches, to believers, to people who already know the Gospel. They should already know the Gospel. And this says to us that here we are as a church, we already know the Gospel, and yet we need it more and more. We need it every day. We need to be reminded. We need him to write to us these words about the truths of what Christ has done for us. We do not grow past our need for the gospel. We do not grow out of our need for the gospel. We don't say, okay, that was for my first month as a Christian, but now I'm on to bigger and better and greater things. This is what we need. That's observation number one. Number two is similar. The question that these Christians have and the issues they're dealing with are essentially this. How now do we live as believers in Christ? How do we live as believers in Christ? They're not necessarily asking this question, how do I get saved? What is the gospel? They're asking, how do I live? And yet to answer that question, Paul goes back to the gospel. To answer the question of how do we conduct ourselves as believers in the church, the answer is, well, let's examine the basic truths of the gospel and see what we can learn. Because the topic here is the gospel. As we read it, the topic is justification by faith, which is another way of saying the gospel. Justification by faith. J.I. Packer says, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears the entire world on its shoulders. And if Atlas falls, everything that rests on it comes crashing down also. This is the fundamental doctrine of all of the scriptures. This bears up everything else that we know. Luther says, If the doctrine of justification is lost the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. And I think there's a reality that we can see that in many churches, in many places, even in many hearts, the doctrine of justification by faith is being lost. 
it is being lost. And I think there's a reality that if we are not careful, we can, it's easy to say that when we're looking out there and we say, oh, out there, those people have lost it. And yet there's a reality that for all of us, if we are not diligent to go back to the scriptures, to preach this to ourselves, to hear it regularly, it will be easily lost in our hearts. We need these words. We need this doctrine. We need the glory of salvation through justification by faith regularly. We need it today. Luther also, he went on and he said, Most necessary is it therefore that we should know this doctrine well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's a great Luther-esque quote to say that we need to know this and we need to beat it into other people's heads. And that's true, but I would, I would add this. This doctrine of justification by faith is something that, yes, we need to know this. We need to teach it. We need to beat people with it. But also this. We also need to love this doctrine of justification by faith. It's not enough simply to know the bare bones of the argument. It's not enough for us to, to think about it only as an intellectual argument to be understood and dissected. It's something that we must grow to love in our hearts. It's something that we need to know by deep, heartfelt experience. It's something that we must be mastered by in a way that, that leads us voluntarily to worship Christ more, to worship him more, more passionately, to feel a greater zeal for him, to, have, feel, to feel more joy in our spirits when we're in his presence. Let this never become just a dry doctrine for us. I hope nobody hears, oh, today is justification by faith day. I'll just take a little nap. Let this not become a dry doctrine for us, just to be thought about, just to be considered. But this is good news that refreshes our souls. This, that's how it is when you hear good news. If you're having a rough day, if things haven't gone well, and you hear a, a piece of good news, it, it can turn your day around. And that's what this is designed to be, to give life to the weary, to give joy to the distraught. And so this is the question of justification. To state it simply, the question is, how do we become acceptable to God? What is it then that, that when we come before God, as we stand before him regularly in our lives, what is it that makes it us to be accepted by him? How can we be found acceptable to God? And here's the truth about this question, that I believe millions of people here in Los Angeles ask this question. They may not know these words. They may not have the sophisticated theological language to frame their argument, but people are constantly feeling the persistent nag of this question. Los Angeles, just as a, a city as a whole, is a crucible. This is a, a city where people come to to find life. They say nobody is from Los Angeles. Everyone moves here for something. Well, why do they move here? They move here because this is a chance to, to find life to establish yourself, to establish a career, to maybe to be discovered, maybe to make it as somebody, maybe to prove to yourself or to others or to the world that you are somebody, that you are acceptable because you're good enough or you're smart enough or you're attractive enough. L.A. is where people come to find life. It's one never-ending quest of a city to prove that you are something. It's a quest to justify your own existence, even if it's only to yourself. There's a, a real experiential truth for Christians that, that we really are the only people who can rest from this quest of feeling that you need to prove yourself, of feeling that you need to justify your existence to others. As Christians, we, we can rest from that because what this doctrine is going to say to us is that we are accepted by God. We are, not, 
not because of what we have done or what we might accomplish or, or because we're good enough or smart enough, but because of what Christ has done, we have peace with God and we're acceptable to him. And so that gives us freedom now to get off this quest of trying to justify ourselves. There's a real practical side to this doctrine, a real practical side that, that it can set us free from the pressure to prove yourself, to, to feel like you have to prove that you're somebody. And yet, the, the irony is that as freeing as this doctrine is, as great as this doctrine is, as, as joyful as this is, nevertheless, we're prone to wander, aren't we? We're prone to forget. Human beings are forgetful people and none more so than in the spiritual realm. And so Paul states it for us in these verses. He states three times, three times right in a row, that we are not justified by what we do, by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. That we are not made acceptable to God by what we do, but by putting our faith in Christ. Listen to verse 16. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I think he's trying to say something there. And I hope we hear it. Three times in a row. Because this is a truth that I believe is actually fairly counterintuitive and countercultural to the world that we live in. Los Angeles is a meritocracy. We live in a country that is a meritocracy. In other words, it's, you have to earn where you want to go by what you do. In the corporate world, you get what you deserve based on your abilities. You will move up the ladder only as far as you can based on your skills. You get what you deserve. If you want to get ahead, you need to work for it. You need to earn it. You need to uh, put in the blood, sweat, and tears until you are rewarded for what you have done. It's not only in the corporate world, is it? It's also in our, our family lives. Sometimes in our personal lives, we feel this. I, I think we feel it uh, more acutely these days because of the presence of social media. Right? If you're on uh, Pinterest or Facebook, we know it's this never-ending quest to justify your existence before others by only posting those things on social media that make you look good. I mean, has anyone else sensed this? That we only put the highlight reel of our life on there so that we look like we live this amazing life without any problems or any uh, depression. And so we see everyone else doing that and we think, okay, we've got to compete. So-and-so is living the life. We've got to do better. You know, we're earning our status. We're earning our world. It's, a, it's a, a nightmare of social media. We feel like we have to prove our own righteousness in the corporate world through our work and our personal lives, our family lives, through through what we do by how picture-perfect our families are. One pastor of a, a significantly large church once shared about a, a recurring nightmare he had. And, and his nightmare was this, that he came to church one day and he got up in his pulpit to preach and the sanctuary was completely empty. He said, except for his wife, who was sitting in the front row listening to a John Piper sermon on her iPod. And he said he knew that why that was his recurring nightmare because he said he found more of his identity in his vocation, in his status as a pastor of a successful growing church than anywhere else. And so his greatest fear was losing that identity. And he said when he had to remind himself of the gospel and simply put his foot down and say, my church is not my righteousness. My attainments in the corporate world are not my righteousness. The beauty or picture perfectness of my family is not my righteousness. None of those things can drive us to distraction and, and stress us and weary us because that's simply not our righteousness. Our righteousness is in Christ. 
And so only in the gospel are we freed from this quest to prove ourselves, to, to, to display that we're somebody, to, to prove our worth only in the gospel. Because the gospel works on a completely different logic. The gospel tells us you can't earn it. You couldn't possibly earn it. All the blood, sweat, and tears in the world, you couldn't possibly earn it. In fact, you need to stop trying to earn it. You need to stop trying to earn it, and you need to uh, relax. It's, it's given as a gift. And when you try to pay for a gift, it's an insult to the giver of the gift. You need to accept it. You need to humble yourself and accept the gift. And so Paul says three times in verse 16, he says it three different ways. First, he says it personally. He said, he's speaking about himself and Peter here in verse 16. He says, we know personally, personal experience, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that they have this knowledge. That's step one is you have to know the truth and they have knowledge that they have personally uh, known this. Second, he says it experientially. He says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So not only do they know it to be true, but he says now also we believe it to be true. We've acted on it. We've actually put our faith in this. And then he says third, sort of universally, is just this proclamation. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we know it to be true, we believe it to be true, and, and he just proclaims it. This is what we proclaim, the gospel, that by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And so this is the message that we proclaim. This is the message that we have. This is the message that I'm, I'm praying we will be more zealous now to spread and to proclaim that by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Instead, look to Christ and be saved to Christ and be saved. The message is this. We, we need to stop seeking to establish our own righteousness, whether it's in our career achievements, whether it's through getting our lives together, or even through moral and religious accomplishments. We must stop. Stop seeking to establish our own righteousness. Instead, we acknowledge our own brokenness. It's called repenting. We acknowledge our own brokenness. We acknowledge our own helplessness. And rather than trying to fix it ourselves, we simply look to Christ. We know that we are saved by faith in Christ, and so we believe it. We act on it. We believe faith in Christ, not works of the law. And so the gospel frees us. It frees us from that quest. But secondly, the gospel also changes us. It frees us, and now it also changes us. In verse 17, Paul anticipates an objection. It's a very common objection, and he does well to anticipate it, as he often does, particularly in Romans, we hear he's sort of debating this imaginary partner, and he anticipates their objections. And so he, he's just said three times, as loudly and clearly as he can, that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. And now here's the objection, verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And so, this is the objection. This is the objection that, that if you're preaching salvation by faith, by faith alone, in, in Christ alone, through grace alone, that perhaps then, you're just turning Christ into a servant of sin. So, so picture yourselves. We've talked previous weeks about these false teachers that have infected these churches in Galatia. There's 
uh, he's called them the Judaizers, who are teaching that in order to be saved, it's, it's not through Christ alone. They're teaching that it is, you must believe in Christ, yes, but you must also obey all the regulations of the Mosaic Law. So picture yourself as one of these teachers who's holding on to the Mosaic Law and holding the whole thing up with all of its regulations, with all of its teachings, and saying, in order to be saved, you must obey these rules. Now, these false teachers no doubt saw themselves as somewhat of the self-appointed moral policemen of the society. They were the ones who appointed themselves to make sure that everybody was behaving, that everybody was doing what they ought to do, that everybody was following the rules, and they felt that they held the ultimate trump card in this regard. Because they could, certain, they, they could simply say, if other people didn't want to obey, they said, but you must if you want to be saved. I mean, what do people respond to that with? It, you know, they've got the ultimate trump card to say, in order to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to have eternal life, then you must do this. And now here comes Paul, with his apostolic authority saying, actually, I know the way to be saved, and you don't have to do any of that. It's apart from works of the law, it's through Christ. You don't have to follow those laws to be saved. Think how you feel as one of those teachers. That's why their objection is now, well, Paul, you're just preaching grace because you don't want to obey all the rules. You want to go live however you want to live. You want to disobey. You want to break the laws. And so it helps then if you preach grace not law. I think that's their first thought. That's what it means then to make Christ a servant of sin. In other words, they're claiming that he is preaching Christ not because he loves Christ, but because he's using Christ. He's using faith in Christ as a convenient way to justify his own lifestyle, whatever, however he wants to live, whatever he wants to do. And Paul's response to this is, is Certainly not. Certainly not. May it never be so. Now, Paul explains, but before we get into Paul's explanation, let's just take a moment and, and recognize that this is a fear that is very much alive and well today. There are many people who are sort of afraid of grace. It's true. It, it sounds silly to be afraid of something as innocuous as grace, and yet there are people who are afraid of it because they think, if we preach grace too much, if we talk about grace too much in our churches, then we're going to lose our trump card for, for regulating how people live their lives. Because as it is, you know, we, we've, we've got this. We can tell them, you must live this way and not that way. You must do these things and not, th not those things. And if, if we set that aside and simply say, you're saved by grace apart from anything you do, your actions do not save you, then we're going to lose our authority to tell people to live a holy and righteous life. They're afraid of that. And Paul will go on to explain how that's not at all the case. But, but we're afraid of that. I think parents, perhaps more than anyone, can recognize the fear of grace. Are we willing to give grace to our children when they disobey? Or are we afraid that if we give too much grace, that they'll take advantage of it? They say, ah, I don't gain my parents' love and acceptance and favor by how well I behave, they tell me that they're going to love me no matter what I do. That's great. I'll do whatever I want to do, and they'll still love me. And, and so I, I think as parents, we feel that. Even this week, I was driving around in the car with Judah in the back seat, and, and he asked me this question. He said, Daddy, do you love me even when I disobey? Which really keeps a guy on his toes to get that, those kind of questions every now and then. But, but we use those words when we discipline. We say, you know what, you know, you shouldn't do that, but you need to know we love you even when you disobey. And, 
And he could almost see the little wheels in his little head turning to, ask what, to, to figure out what exactly does this mean. This goes against everything that I would have naturally thought that I could obey and they love me or I disobey and they, they don't anymore. But, but now to say, do you love me even when I disobey? And of course I said, yes, Judah, we love you even when you disobey. Which is a scary thing to tell a three-year-old because you don't know which direction they're going to go with that. But we feel that in parenting and we can feel that in the church. We can feel that in our own lives. We can be afraid of grace. Now worse yet, worse yet, there are some who would say that uh, some people would preach grace too much just to simply justify their own lifestyle. I think this is part of the complaint here that Paul is getting, that there are some who preach grace only to justify their lewd lifestyles. In other words, they, they may not love the doctrines of grace because of Christ, but they love the doctrine of grace because they love all of their vices, and they think that by preaching grace, it means they don't have to give up any of their vices. They claim that we use grace as a theologically sophisticated excuse to go on sinning. That we preach that it's not by our works, just so we can do evil works. And Paul says, certainly not. May it never be so. May that never be true of us, that we preach the grace of Christ to justify sin. There may be some who who claim that, but we would say those are the ones who don't understand grace at all. In the Bible, we read all through the New Testament, all through the scriptures, that grace never goes soft on sin. Grace never allows sin. The more we understand grace, the more we flee from sin. First Peter says, the grace of God has appeared teaching us to flee from unrighteousness. That's what grace does. And so Paul's objectors are objecting because they're afraid of grace. Now we need to look at Paul's response. Verse 18. You see, Paul now has two, two alternatives. He can, he can go back to law-keeping, or he can un- explain exactly what grace does. Paul's objectors, the Judaizers, they would have him go back to law-keeping as a way of gaining favor with God. But here's what Paul says in verse 18. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what he has torn down is he has torn down the law as a means of finding acceptance with God. He has completely demolished that. He said, our works of the law is not how we find favor with God. He said it three times in verse 16. And he says, if I rebuild the law as a way of finding favor with God, what happens? He says, well, all it does is prove that I'm a transgressor. In other words, I I reestablish the law, but all over the law is written that I am a transgressor. It proves that I don't earn a favor with God. It proves that I cannot earn favor with God because it wouldn't establish that I've kept the law. It would merely show that I have broken the law at multiple points. So he's showing here the futility of trying to be justified by law because all the law does is prove that we are sinners. It, It diagnoses us, but it does not offer a cure for us. In other words, Paul would say the law is something like a spiritual MRI machine. It can show you exactly what's wrong, but it has no power to heal. It can diagnose very accurately your need, but it cannot take care of your need. It cannot heal once it finds out what is broken. Paul says the law merely proves that he is a sinner. To be healed from our sin, we need something else entirely other than the law. We need the gospel. And so we we need verse 20. 
verse 20, we see the gospel has a very unexpected way of healing us from our sin, of changing us, fixing us. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so here's what he's saying. There's the law, and the law merely diagnoses our problem. It shows us that we are a sinner. The gospel, on the other hand, actually deals with our sin through death and resurrection. Through death and resurrection, it, this is unexpected how, how Paul is going to say that the gospel is going to heal us, how it's going to change us. It does it through death and resurrection. So it would be a fairly odd doctor who said to you, okay, we've done the MRI, I've found what's wrong, you have a torn ACL or, or whatever it may be. Now, I don't know how to fix it, but we're just going to put you to death and then I will raise you to newness of life and you'll be all better. That would be an unexpected trip to the doctor. right? We're, well, I'll just kill you and then I'll raise you from the dead and you'll be brand new. But that's what Paul is saying. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching in verse 20. He says, the, gospel, the, the law has diagnosed my problem that yes, I am a sinner. In myself, I have no right to stand before God. I'm not acceptable. I'm not justified by what I do because the law shows I'm a sinner. But by grace of God in the gospel, we're united to Christ and it says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. I'm going to read Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. Romans 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Again, this is how God is dealing with our sin problem. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Christ. And so the way that the gospel deals with our our sin, if we're going to be justified, it has to deal with our sin somehow. And this is what it does. It puts us to death with Christ. That that spiritually, there's this reality that, that by faith, we are spiritually united to Christ so that whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us. So that because Christ has been crucified, we too have been crucified. And therefore, we are no longer enslaved by sin because we've been put to death. And when you're dead, the law no longer has any hold on you. And not only does he put us to death with Christ, but because Christ was then raised from the dead, we also are raised to newness of life. And this is Paul's solution now to this problem that you're simply using grace to justify your lifestyle. Paul would say, listen, the gospel is not at all softer on the problem of sin. It's much, much uh, worse for sin. All the law could do was, was try to restrain our sin. The gospel actually puts the sinner to death and then raises him with Christ in newness of life so that we are now dead to sin that that no longer enslaves us. Because my, my real problem is not only my behavior, the things that I do. If my problem were the behavior, then yeah, the law could correct that because it could make me do other things. But my real problem is not what I do, it's who I am. It's in my heart. That my heart is, at its very core, sinful even from birth. And so we need much, something much more drastic than law. We need new birth. 
need to be born again. We need newness of life. We need uh, this, a new heart. As Ezekiel says, he'll take out the old. He'll give us a new. John says, you must be born again. Paul says, you must be, cruci- be crucified and risen. All of these speak to the same thing, that we are made new in Christ, a new creation. Now he explains it one last way here in verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We need to recognize the reality of what we do when in our pride we are seeking to establish our own righteousness. Paul says when we do that, we are doing nothing less than nullifying the grace of God altogether by attempting to earn that which can only be received as a gift. By attempting to pay for that which he wants to give us for free, we're nullifying the graciousness of the giver. And so Paul would say to us, we need to stop. We need to stop attempting to establish our own righteousness, whether it's by our career achievements, by what we have accomplished, by the, the size of our body of work, by our, our moral or ethical goodness, whatever it is, we need to instead acknowledge our helplessness, that we cannot be justified by a holy God. Instead, we need to throw ourselves on Christ, trust in him alone. We don't We don't nullify the grace of God. We don't modify the grace of God. Rather, we acknowledge our desperate need for the grace of God. In doing so, we magnify the giver of the grace. We magnify him. We make much of Christ. In Luther's commentary on Galatians, at the very beginning, the very first page, he has a list. And it's called 50 Inconveniences of Establishing Your Own Righteousness which I think is a funny title, 50 Inconveniences, as though they were just minor irritants, when when actually things on this list are things like we nullify God's grace to us if we try to establish our own righteousness. We make Christ a servant of sin when we try to establish our own righteousness. Instead, cling to the gospel and the righteousness of Christ to magnify the grace of God and make Christ a savior for sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our our desire as believers, our desire as a church is that we will magnify the grace of God given to us in Christ, that we will make much of the gift, that we will love the giver of the gift. And Father, that our hearts will be changed, that in walking in newness of life with Christ in us, Lord, that we will love him more dearly, more preciously. Father, we pray, draw us to Christ today through the goodness of the good news that we treasure in the scriptures. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our song of the month for October is our song of reflection today. The love of Christ is rich and free. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord.